was really beautiful. Nineteen sixty-one did not get off to a very good start for me, nor for a lot of other Seventh-day Adventists. I was in ninth grade at Loma Linda Academy. John Kennedy became president in January. Now, those who are younger think of John Kennedy as a very inspiring figure. But to a um, 14, 15-year-old Seventh-day Adventist boy who had learned all the way through school about the soon coming of Jesus, about the terrible time of trouble that would precede it, and about the role of the national Sunday law that would create the problems. The fact that the United States had just elected the first Catholic president ever terrorized me. I thought the time of trouble was probably going to start before June. As the year progressed, <clears throat> there were some more bad news for Seventh-day Adventists, but it wasn't from John Kennedy. Abraham Bromfield was an Orthodox Jew. He lived in Philadelphia. He ran a retail clothing store. He was doing okay with his business until Philadelphia passed a law in 1959 requiring clothing stores and a bunch of other stores to close on Sunday. These laws have been very common in our history. They're called blue laws. And Philadelphia decided they needed a Sunday closing law. Well, for Abraham, this was uh, more than an inconvenience. Because he was Orthodox, he kept the Sabbath. So he closed his business on Saturday. Sunday was his big day. He realized if he was not able to sell on Sunday, he might lose his business entirely. So he sued. And the case went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court looked at this case through the eyes of the First Amendment. I don't know if you guys have a, there we go, a graphic. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. 
Mr. Bromfield argued that you have infringed upon the free exercise of religion. You've actually created such a burden for me that my choice to worship on Saturday will cause me to lose my source of livelihood. The Supreme Court at that time was called the Warren Court. The Warren Court was the most liberal court for its time ever in American history. And the Chief Justice was none other than Earl Warren, who has probably personally had more of an influence on constitutional law than any other justice ever, with the possible exception of John Marshall. Warren uh, became a very liberal chief justice and expanded freedoms. He wrote the opinion in this case. He sided with Philadelphia. Mr. Bronfield lost. He said that this law was not a religious law. That it was a law designed to provide people with a day off, away from labor, and that it was within the appropriate power of the government to select a day and to enforce it. And the fact that Mr. Bronfield was going to be inconvenienced by that was unfortunate, but he was not being asked or prohibited from worshiping when he chose to worship. It's a little surprising that Earl Warren wrote that, considering his track record, but he did. It was a blow for Orthodox Jews, for Seventh-day Adventists, and for one fairly scared 15-year-old Seventh-day Adventist at Loma Linda Academy. But things got a little better in a couple of years. Adele Sherbert was a Seventh-day Adventist at this time. She lived uh, near Spartanburg, South Carolina. <clears throat> she worked in a textile mill. This is back before the textile industry disappeared in this country. And South Carolina and the South was the center of the textile industry. She had a decent job. She worked hard. She was, uh, worked on one of the uh, spindles, I think. And she made a living. She had, uh, had Adventist background, but had not been observant. But in the last few years, she'd come back to church and was an active part of the very small Seventh-day Adventist community in that area. There was about 150 Seventh-day Adventists. <clears throat> Business was good for the clothing industry. And so her mill decided they would open six days a week instead of five. They were already running three shifts a day. 
and they ordered her to work on Saturday. She explained to them that she could not do that because she was a Seventh-day Adventist. And they explained to her that that was a condition of her employment, and they fired her. She went to another mill, could not get hired. And another mill could not get hired. And to a third mill and could not get hired. She was running out of money. So she went and applied for South Carolina's unemployment insurance. She filled out the forms, but when she told them that she was not available to work on Sabbath, they said, then you are ineligible because the law requires that you must be available for work. And if you are not available for work on Saturday, you can't receive the benefits. Adele sued. Let me stop for a second with a footnote. She was broke. <laughs> Costs a lot of money to, look, to do, do a simple trial, let alone appeals and appeals in the Supreme Court. That's a very expensive process. So these cases that we're reading about are generally not paid for by the named person. They're paid for, advocacy, paid for by advocacy groups. The Seventh-day Adventist churches, Church does that. In fact, a little bit of the money that's received for the religious liberty offering goes into the litigation budget. So back to Adele. She sued, she lost. She sued again or appealed, she lost. It went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Can you believe that? A Seventh-day Adventist named plaintiff, Sherbert versus Verner. Supreme Court looked over the facts, reviewed the law. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Well, that's not the issue here, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And they said... Adele was very sincere in her beliefs. And the law in South Carolina was not directed against her. It was a general law. She just happened to be hurt by it. But that it had a big impact on her religious faith. It caused her to choose between observance and work. And the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Adele Sherbert. Seventh-day Adventists could take a breath. A major victory. Most laws that are passed by the government, state, local, federal, don't set out to restrict people's religious freedom. They're called neutral laws in this context because the purpose of the law is not to restrict freedom. But neutral laws frequently do restrict freedom in some individuals. That's exactly what happened with Abram Bronfeld and with Adele Sherbert. This is still the Warren Court, but the Warren Court came up with 
a different understanding, a different result, one that upheld Adele Sherbert's religious freedom. By the way, I said I was petrified because a, a Roman Catholic became president of the United States. The opinion in Sherbert versus Werner was written by a Roman Catholic justice of the Supreme Court. The one who wrote Bronfield versus Brown, Earl Warren, he was a Lutheran. Go figure. Some people are worried these days because the current Supreme Court has all Catholic or Jewish. There are no Protestant justices. And I've heard some buzz about that. Um, frankly, I'm not so concerned about what their religious faith is. I'm way more concerned about their voting patterns. Uh, some of the most protective of religious freedom have been Catholic justices. One of the questions that arises that we should talk about for just a minute is, is it okay to sue? Mrs. Sherbert sued. Doesn't Paul say we shouldn't sue? That's why I asked Steve to read the scripture that he did. Paul uh, was um, being persecuted by the Jews, and the governors were being given a lot of pressure to execute him. Paul was very fortunate in that he had been born a Roman citizen, even though he's Jewish. And so when he realized that they were talking about sending him back to Jerusalem to be tried, he realized that he would not ever see any more missionary activity. So he did what Roman citizens had a right to do. He appealed directly to the emperor. That doesn't necessarily mean the emperor actually heard the case. That was like their Supreme Court. And we do that today. <clears throat> Ellen White even says that we should not sue each other to resolve differences between us, but we should stand up for the freedom to worship God. And so Seventh-day Adventists, when necessary, uh, file lawsuits to protect the free exercise of religion. Jonas Yoder was Old Order Amish. Now, right about now, uh, two or three people in the audience may be squirming because they probably just triggered on an old memory. There are a handful of former students of mine in this congregation who took a class in school law, a graduate school class at the university in school law, and who remember the name of this case. <laughs> it was actually the very first case I assigned for them that quarter. And um, I'm gonna set them at ease. I'm not going to ask them to recite the facts, the analysis, or the holding. And furthermore, at the end, there will be no quiz. <laughs> Jonas Yoder was an Amish, Old Order, Old Order Amish.
lived in Greene County, Wisconsin. You probably all know what the Amish lifestyle is. It's, they try to live what's called the plain life. They live in rural areas. Uh, many don't use uh, gasoline engines, only horse-drawn. Uh, they don't use, many don't use electricity at all. They make a living often through farming. They're very closely knit communities. They are very communal. They support each other, unless, of course, one of them gets on the outs, in which case they shun them, but that's a different story. The Amish in that community sent their children to school, public school, because they didn't have their own school there. They sent their children to public school through eighth grade, but they did not send them to high school. They felt that the effect of high school would be very damaging on their religious belief. And so they kept them home. They continued their education, but they educated them in the practicalities of how they would live as an Amish. Wisconsin had a neutral law that required all children to be in a public school through age 16, public or limited private school that was approved. Frida, Jonas Yoder's daughter, was 15, and she was not in public school. So Wisconsin fined them. They fined Jonas Yoder $5. But the issue wasn't the $5. The issue was their ability to force the Amish to send their children to a public school. Jonas Yoder sued. It went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court looked at this and said, <clears throat> this is a neutral law, and the importance of universal education is very important. It's one of the most important things a government does. But Jonas Yoder's religious beliefs are being restricted by this neutral law. They looked carefully at exactly what sort of a continuing education these children got. And they also looked carefully at what effect it would have on them if they were forced to go to high school. They said only government interests of the highest order would justify this sort of an impact on the freedom of religion. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of Jonas Yoder that they could continue to educate their children homeschool. Another very strong victory for religious freedom. By this time, the court had developed what's called the compelling state interest test which said that if a law restricted of, of legitimate belief and religious practice, that the government had to have a compelling state reason for doing it. It was a test that would be difficult for governments to win on because it was hard. 
This case is an example of that. I mean, governments have a compelling interest to educate all the children. But the court said, but these children are getting educated. It's just not the same kind of education, but in their case, it may be better for them. So we lived with several decades of those two strong precedents on interpreting the second half of this clause or prohibiting the free exercises thereof. When this country was first settled, the colonial period, many of the people who came here came because they were of the wrong religion and the government-sponsored religion where they were from was persecuting them. And when they came here, they were glad because there was a lot of land and not a lot of people. So they felt safe. But to begin to colonize and work together, and when the colonies were made up of people of the same religion, they began doing somewhat the same thing that had been done to them except that they were now the majority religion. Most people don't realize it, but the colonial period was very long, 170 years approximately. As we reach the end of that, our ideas about freedom and how government should work were changing. And there was more and more dissension about the idea of a state-run or controlled church. When the United States adopted the current Constitution in 1787, I'll get the century correct, in 1787, there was a lot of concern among the delegates that were going to vote for it in the states because it spelled out how government would work. It did not protect citizens, individuals. And so there was a an agreement made that if we vote for this, the very first thing the first Congress will do will be pass a bunch of amendments that give people personal protection against government. And that's exactly what they did. They passed 10 amendments. We call them the Bill of Rights. They passed them in 1791, 1791. <clears throat> the First Amendment the very first portion is this. This comes before free speech, which is a foundational right in a democracy. Freedom of religion came before free speech in the First Amendment. That's pretty amazing. So in the 70s and in the 80s, Religious liberty had a very strong protection because of Supreme Court precedent. But there were uh, troublous times ahead. <clears throat> Lafafora, William C. Lemaire. Anybody know what that is? Any biology teachers out there? I know of one at least. That's Latin. It's peyote. Peyote. There is in the United States a religion called the Native American Church. 
It is um, kind of a modern version of the practices of Native Americans through the centuries, taking some here from this group, some here from this group, and kind of creating a unified religion. In their religion, they use peyote. Peyote is a, uh, a small is a cactus that grows in northern Mexico and in the Rio Grande Valley. It develops a small button on it. That button has a chemical in it that when used by humans, creates an unusual effect. You have visions, colors are heightened, you feel like you understand things you never understood before. The Native Americans, long before the Native American church, used it in worship. And in this Native American church, the current one, continued to practice. But they were not careless drug users. In fact, they had been quite successful in helping Native Americans break addiction to alcohol and drugs. Their use of peyote was very strictly controlled. Never was it used or approved for just recreational use. It was used in a sacramental sense. Al Smith was a Native American. He was living in Oregon. He'd been raised in mainstream America. He'd grown up a Catholic. He'd become alcoholic. His life was a mess. He decided he had to change, and he did. He got clean and sober, and he got a job working as a counselor in a substance abuse program. That's a pretty big change. Part of his new life was a desire to learn more about his Native American heritage. So he began to study and learn. He discovered this church, and he checked it out. He liked it. He became an active member. He used peyote. He got fired. Drug counselors generally shouldn't use drugs. <laughs> Peyote is a controlled substance across the United States. But about 20 states at this time had provided exemptions for the use, the religious use in this religion. Oregon was not one of them. Al Smith got fired. He sued. His case kind of bounced around the courts for years. He actually uh, had applied for unemployment insurance and been denied because he used peyote and was fired for it. But eventually his case made it to the U.S. Supreme Court. The opinion in that case <clears throat> ruled against him. Which is not entirely too surprising because the use of drugs is a very strongly tabooed practice in America. 
We, we have a war, or had a war on drugs back then. But what concerned me more than the outcome was the reasoning of the opinion. The opinion was written by Antonin Scalia. And he took this opportunity to undo Sherbert versus Werner and Wisconsin versus Yoder. He didn't undo the holdings in those cases. He just created a huge bypass to it. Remember I told you that after Sherbert versus Werner and Yoder were decided, the Supreme Court said that any law that prohibited or restricted religious freedom could only be approved or upheld if it had a compelling government interest in it. And that if it was a neutral law, it still had to have a compelling reason to do it. That's what the opinion in Smith versus Oregon rewrote. He entirely deleted that and said, if a neutral law, a law of general applicability, is not designed to discriminate against religion, if a neutral law impacts a person's religious free exercise, the government only needs to show they have a rational basis for the law. Now, I like to joke with my class when I explain this to them that a rational basis is a very, very low standard to uphold a law. I think it basically means that when the legislature voted on the law, they had to be awake at the time. No sleeping when you vote. As a result, religious freedom was drastically altered in America by that one decision. I remember reading that decision and I could not believe what I was reading. I thought, I must have slept through the whole semester in law school. This is not the law. But the next few days, I started to read comments coming out on the case and they had the same reaction I did. What law has he been reading? But nonetheless, it was a Supreme Court opinion. It governed the entire country. Congress was so upset that liberals and conservatives passed a correction law. Can you believe that? Liberals and conservatives. 1983, signed by Bill Clinton. But Supreme Court later said they went way too far. They exceeded their powers and held it unconstitutional as applied to the states. So we are living under the holding of Smith versus Oregon, the rational basis test. That's not good. One vote in that case made the difference as to which one won. And in very close cases, it's frequently a five to four vote on the Supreme Court. Well, we could go on for another few hours, I'm sure, talking about cases, but we're not going to. Let me summarize what I want you to take from this. We are fortunate 
very fortunate to live in the United States where we have a heritage of religious freedom. And even though the Supreme Court rulings are not as good as we would like, there still is a lot of respect in this country for religious freedom. You don't have to look very far to see that that's not the case in most of the world. Thomas Jefferson, who was a, a devout advocate of freedom of religion, is quoted as saying, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. I hope that all of us will, by voice and vote and influence, continue the battle for religious liberty. It never ends. What is God's opinion about freedom of religion? Sometimes if you read the Old Testament, you think, well, it doesn't appear that he had a whole lot of respect for religious freedom. <laughs> but just think about it a little bit. When sin entered the universe, God could have instantly ended it. He could have cleaned it out. He has the power. He could have simply ended sin. And if it arose again, be gone instantly. He didn't do that. He took the hard road of letting his created beings choose if they wanted to worship him or not and how they wanted to worship him. You know, that eventually cost him the life of his son because he took the hard road. But that house, that's how much he values our freedom we should not take it for granted. We should be grateful. We should work to support it. We should admire God's freedom in our lives. Let freedom ring. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the heritage of this country on religious freedom. And we pray that we will not take it for granted, but we'll use our voice, our vote, our influence, to continue it and to spread it. We're grateful that you give us freedom to choose whether or not we will serve you. And we know that that responsibility requires us to provide that same freedom for everyone else. May we reflect your grace in this in every way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.